Welcome back everybody to The Luke Beasley Show. I hope you're doing wonderful on this Thursday. Let's dive in. Well, Donald Trump released another one of these bizarre videos, this time addressing and responding to the fact that Kevin McCarthy has created a subcommittee, announced that he's creating a subcommittee to investigate the weaponization of the federal government. Now, the reason why I say it like that is you and I both know what's really going to be getting focused on with this subcommittee. It's not going to be real examples, meaningful conversations and investigations we can do into possible wrongdoing of our federal government, which there are um, plenty of examples of. Instead, it will be, oh, Fauci should be in jail because of some conspiracy to hurt the American people or the FBI stole the election from Trump or the FBI coerced rioters on January 6th to attack the Capitol or they um, are politically persecuting Trump and that's why they raided him and not Biden, even though, of course, they raided Trump because he wasn't complying, whereas Biden is complying with the investigation and on and on it goes. So I don't know exactly what they'll investigate, but it'll be that type of stuff and we will see how it goes down, a big political show to excite their base. But Trump has a list of stuff he wants investigated, the outlines in this video. We'll look at the video in a second here. But first, from Politico, Speaker Kevin McCarthy has named a mixed bag of members to Republican sprawling investigative panel, including conservative hardliners, leadership allies, and Representative Jim Jordan, who represents a combination of both, to lead it. The California Republican on Tuesday evening appointed a dozen GOP lawmakers, including Jordan, to a select subcommittee on the weaponization of the federal government. Republicans are expected to use it to probe, among other targets, the FBI, Justice Department, and the intelligence community agencies at the center of some of their biggest recent gripes. Exactly uh, right. So again, in response to this, Trump released this video. The new House Committee on the Weaponization of the Federal Government is a rare chance to expose the breathtaking corruption of the security state, the media, and the Washington swamp. Here are just a few of the questions the committee hopefully will be asking. Number one, who is on the Mueller witch hunt? And then it goes on uh, for a while of him listing off stuff, just for the sake of time, since, and honestly, your sanity, we will skip forward and I'll quickly summarize. He talks about the Russia-related stuff, saying the FBI and um, that investigation was managed incorrectly, should be investigated. He says um, that the January 6th, he kind of alludes to the conspiracy conspiracy theories there. Then the FBI stole the election from him, that as well. And then we get to this end part. American citizens illegally, and they got illegal approvals. The approvals were gotten by lying to judges. The judges should be very upset, but they don't seem to be. We should also get a full report on any domestic surveillance of MAGA supporters that has taken place under Biden or Obama and the radical left. And I just want to remind you, you saw it there, but this is so important to note. This is what a lot of people believe is going on. MAGA supporters thinking that Biden and the federal government are going after them, targeting them, surveilling them. It is really another level of fear mongering. 
Joe Biden is presiding over the most corrupt administration in American history. Their weaponization of law enforcement, intelligence agencies, and the deep state is very, in fact, deep-seated. It's the greatest threat American freedom in generations has seen, and their collusion with the fake news media is absolutely atrocious. This committee is a vital chance to bring it all to light, begin to heal our divisions, and save our beloved country. I want to thank you for listening, but it's a big problem. We have to do something. Was that a script mishap? I want to thank you for listening, but it's a big problem. <laughs> for it. I also want to pay my respect to James Comer and Jim Jordan for the incredible job they're doing, for the work they're doing, and for the love they have for our country. Thank you both. Those videos that he releases, as of now, are really his only campaigning. He's finally announced a rally, but and still, he can't nail them. Very strange kind of odd ending there. So right there you're seeing exactly what was expected when the Republican Party took over the House and what we're going to be dealing with over the next two years, which is an unserious, completely uh, political show-oriented push to excite their base, not to really uncover facts, not to really hold people accountable for things that they did incorrectly, but to make their base excited, to fearmonger, and to attack the Democratic Party. And so, who knows all of the different, uh, all the different conspiracy theories that are going to dive into, all the different individuals they're going to target with this subcommittee. But it's going to be um, quite the buffoonish situation, no doubt. So we have that to look forward to. The Justice Department has revealed that the Louisiana Department of Corrections has been holding over a quarter of their inmates past the release date, sometimes up to 90 days past the release date. Look at this from CNN. Uh, nearly 27% of Louisiana state inmates are held beyond their release dates, U.S. Justice Department says. And just to give you a little foreshadowing, we're going to look at this and then discuss a little bit more about other elements of our prison system. The Louisiana Department of Corrections is keeping more than a quarter of inmates behind bars past their scheduled release date, the U.S. Justice Department said in a report Wednesday. According to the Justice Department, between January and April 2022 alone, nearly 27% of those released from LDOC custody, nearly 4,100 people were held past their release dates. Of those held beyond their release dates, 24% were held for at least 90 extra days, almost three months past when they were supposed to, which of course is a violation of their rights. You can't just choose outside of our judicial system to keep someone longer because the um, prison decided to. And so it's good the Justice Department is calling this out. They've said they will sue if Louisiana uh, and their Department of Corrections does not fix this immediately, and it should be addressed. And then I want to take this as an opportunity while we're on the subject of prisons to just go through a couple other details that I've been um, thinking about and reading about as of recently. And number one, we'll start with the way in which we force prisoners to work while they're in prison for 
sometimes no and sometimes very, very little pay with horrible conditions. Here from the University of Chicago Times, just a few facts we'll outline. Uh, nearly two-thirds, 65% of incarcerated people report working behind bars, amounting to roughly 800,000 workers incarcerated in prisons. Incarcerated workers produce at least $2 billion in goods and $9 billion worth of prison maintenance services annually. Most states pay incarcerated workers pennies per hour for their work. Seven states, Alabama, Arkansas, Florida, Georgia, Mississippi, South Carolina, and Texas, pay nothing for the vast majority of prison work. And if this was voluntary, that would be one thing. But more than three quarters of incarcerated people surveyed 76% report facing punishment such as solitary confinement, denial of sentence reductions, or loss of family visitation if they decline work. So they're being forced into labor. That is completely unacceptable. And the history of this forced labor is a very, very dark one. And so let's quickly go through this. Um, from the Harvard Political Review. Though the 13th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution is known as the amendment which abolished slavery, there is an exception. As punishment for a crime of which one is duly convicted, slavery and involuntary servitude are permitted. Ratified in 1865, the 13th Amendment paved the way for uh, Jim Crow laws in the South. Legislatures established black codes, strict laws explicitly punishing black people for petty crimes, such as loitering, not carrying proof of employment, and more. Violators of these codes could be thrown in prison, and according to the 13th Amendment's loophole, they could then be required to perform unpaid harsh labor. Until World War II, this practice of convict leasing was common. And just stick with me, this um, paragraph here is stunning. The convict leasing system was designed to continue the subjugation of black people after slavery was outlawed. It was not until this system was implemented that there were more black people than white people incarcerated in the U.S., and that has not changed. It is on the back of this system that our system of incarceration has been built. So the origin of this system that we have where people who are locked in prison can then be forced to uh, work for very little or no pay, slave labor, that was used right after slavery was abolished by coming up with bogus reasons to lock black people up so that they could once again be subjugated, once again be forced into these situations. That is the origin of this horrible uh, system in the United States. And then you wonder why the United States' prison system has such worse results for the individuals involved than others in the world. I want to quickly look at a couple more facts and then we'll discuss a little further. All of this is very important. The United States has the highest incarceration rate in the world. About 25% of the world's total prison population is in the United States. A quarter of all the prisoners in the entire world are in the United States' prison system. And a big reason for that is the fact that our recidivism rate is so high. One last thing we'll look at, recidivism is the tendency of a convicted criminal to repeat or reoffend a crime after already receiving punishment or serving their sentence. The United States has some of the highest recidivism rates in the world, 
According to the National Institute of Justice, almost 44% of criminals released return before the first year out of prison. In 2005, about 68,000 of 405,000 released prisoners were arrested for a new crime within three years, and 77% were arrested within five years. 77% within five years have been arrested once again. That is a deep and profound flaw with our prison system. And I think societally we have this tendency to see and treat prisoners as less than human because they've committed crimes. And I think, I, I wish that more individuals could see the fact that yes, we can recognize when individuals need to be held accountable for crimes, 100%, I'm not calling for some weird, you know, no law and order society, absolutely should be held accountable for crimes and still seen as a human being. If you can't do that, then still just selfishly from your perspective, it's best for you, it's best for our communities to have people once they get out of prison, be able to bring value into that community, not be so likely to once again commit a crime, once again not be with their loved ones, not be able to provide for a family, all those different things. If we truly care about enriching our communities, one of the ways we can do that is by improving the prison system so that individuals don't uh, get treated in the way that they do and thus be set up perfectly to continue with uh, negative life actions. Let me know what you think, Luke P. Beasley on Twitter. Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene did an interview with OAN and floated a conspiracy theory that we've been hearing pretty consistently now that the Democratic Party actually may be setting up Biden with these documents. This is a setup, a conspiracy to take down Biden because they don't want him to run for re-election. But then listen to how she squares that with something else she wants to say. Doesn't make any sense whatsoever, these two thoughts um, running parallel, but take a look. Green tells One American News she's calling for the impeachment of Biden amid the probe of his handling of classified documents. One America's John Hines has the exclusive interview from Capitol Hill. I thought it was interesting. Uh, Senate Majority Whip Richard Durbin of Illinois um, basically called uh, this handling of classified documents by the president as unacceptable. Joe Manchin of West Virginia said uh, Mr. Biden should have a lot of regrets about this situation, and he called it totally irresponsible. What do you make of this criticism from Democrats of uh, Mr. Biden and his handling of classified documents? Well, they're, they're right to say those things. But it also makes me wonder something else that, that other people have been wondering. Are, are we seeing a setup for them to try to get Joe Biden not to run for president and perhaps make way for someone else to run for president in 2024? I think those are, those are interesting things to think about. But I'm glad to see, um, you know, Democrat senators and different Democrats uh, just claiming what is absolutely true how reckless and irresponsible. It shows that he's not fit for office. I'll say it again, impeach Joe Biden, and now we just have more reasons to do so. So did you see what she did there? At the beginning, she's saying that this is some conspiracy, a setup to take down Biden by the Democrats. Then immediately, the next breath, she shifts to, this shows how unfit for office Biden is, and this is the reason he should be impeached. But if it was a setup, 
then it's not his fault, right? It's a conspiracy. It's a scheme to take him down. The documents were planted or something. Is that, I think that's what's being alluded to because I've heard so many people now say that, oh, this is a little suspicious. The Democratic Party looks like uh, it's a setup to take down Biden. Now, the only way I guess this would make sense is the documents, that part isn't a setup, but the response to it is a setup. But setup makes it definitely sound like you're talking about the documents being in his house. But let's say that they're just saying, it's a setup by the Democrats to take down Biden like they f helped find the documents, but it was Biden who did the wrong thing that he should be impeached for, which was having the documents. Okay, so now this is all going fine, I guess, besides the conspiracy theory part of it. <laughs> but then still it doesn't make sense that what's uh, causing you to believe that is the Democratic Party's response to this, which is if there's wrongdoing, hold them accountable, investigate it. That's just called reasonable. That's just called not caring that someone in your party and still wanting um, accountability if it's necessary to be brought down, right? So there's nothing suspicious about that. It's suspicious if you're someone like Marjorie Green, who's so used to defending, no matter what the facts are, someone who's on your side, right? Because with Trump, she was going to say the Mar-a-Lago document story was just a witch hunt against Trump. He didn't do anything wrong. And so then she turns and sees the Democrats when there's a story about Biden, granted less severe as far as the document situation goes, no obstruction, all that, but still it should be investigated, accountability if necessary. And she is seeing people respond that way on the left saying, listen, investigate it and thinking, well, that's suspicious. They're not just blindly covering for Biden. They're not just blindly trying to say it's not a big deal at all. Hmm, something must be going on here. <laughs> Instead of recognizing, oh, that's what it looks like to not be blinded by one's partisanship and to be totally fine with someone who's more on your side being investigated in a situation like this. Very, very fascinating stuff. Luke Beasley official on Instagram. During a recent press conference, Republican Senator Rick Scott repeated what I guess you would call a misleading statement, but it was a lie. He knows that he's being dishonest here. It was a lie. And it's something he said recently-ish, maybe a month or two ago on CNN about the Democrats being the real ones who are trying to cut Medicare. It's actually the Democrats coming for and cutting Medicare. And he cites a particular figure. And so we'll walk through why this is just stunningly dishonest in a second here, but here's the moment that occurred yesterday, um, today or yesterday, and then spliced in the same clip is the CNN flashback where he said this uh, back then. Take a look. Don't you get fired. And you know who cut Medicare is the Democrats. They did, they did in September in their spending bill. They cut $280 billion out of Medicare. So they want to say Republicans want to cut Medicare. None of us support cutting Medicare benefits, but they actually did it. Again, Absolutely not. And you know, the Democrats just cut $280 billion. All Democrats in the Senate and House voted to cut $280 billion out of Medicare just two, what, two months ago. Just want to correct the record. The Democrats plan, which is now law, it didn't cut social, excuse me, didn't cut Medicare benefits. It allowed for negotiation for prescription drug prices, which would ultimately bring down the price and the cost for, for Medicare consumers. But I want to ask the next question. Okay, I'm glad we don't have to watch more of that interview because I remember how oh, aggravating it was to watch that when we originally covered it. Um, 
So this is the perfect example. Part of why I pulled this for the show today is this is the perfect example of taking a kernel of truth and then just absolutely bending now I'm mixing metaphors, but going far enough with your dishonest portrayal of the fact that it's a lie. You cannot say they cut as in the benefits of Medicare. That's what's being assumed when you say that. And it's so wild to watch them. I don't get why politicians can just openly do that. So let me explain where this come from, uh, comes from and then we'll discuss further. The Inflation Reduction Act of 2022, signed into law by President Biden on August 16th, 2022, includes several provisions to lower prescription drug costs for people with Medicare and reduce drug spending by the federal government. This legislation has taken shape amidst strong bipartisan public support for the government to address high and rising drug prices. CBO estimates that the drug pricing provisions in the law will reduce the federal deficit by $237 billion over 10 years. So that over $200 billion figure that he cited comes from the fact that the legislation that the Biden administration pushed for um, and eventually signed into law that allowed Medicare to negotiate drug prices, meaning they can negotiate down the drug price to save the government money and save the uh, individuals on Medicare money. Rick Scott is saying that's cutting Medicare. So by saving money, because we're not allowing the drug companies to price gouge us as much, but we're still giving the same amount of benefits to the Medicare recipient as we were before, that to him is cutting Medicare. So the way for the Democrats to have not cut Medicare would have been, hey, let's for no reason just chuck more money at the drug companies and not save the money we could get through negotiations. This is not cutting benefits, it's just saving money, getting the same benefits. That is a stunning level of dishonesty and it drives me crazy to see. One more moment from this press conference, um, this time Rand Paul. If we were to have a $100 billion cut, which would still have a spending way more than we spent before COVID, a $100 billion cut and free spending, we would balance our budget in just four years. This is amazing. We have an opportunity here. It could be done, but it would take compromise between both parties. Republicans would have to give up the sacred cow that says we will never touch a dollar in military, and the Democrats would have to give up the sacred cow that they will never touch a dollar in welfare. Everything would have to be looked across the board. No one has a sacred area that would be immune, and when you make the cuts across the board, they aren't as big as you'd actually think they would be. Okay, so he's talking about... Um cuts saying that the Republicans need to be willing to cut military spending, the Democrats need to be willing to cut welfare spending. And I'm sure there's some examples you can give me of within our welfare programs, tons of examples, inefficiencies, money going to places that it shouldn't. Sure. But generally this concept of, ah, wait, no, we need to cut stuff. We need to cut welfare. We're giving too much to people. We need to do more tax cuts. No, uh, for the wealthy. Uh, that is so misleading because all of the actions that Rand Paul would want to take or Trump was pushing for the other day in an attempt to say we could save Medicare and Social Security by cutting woke stuff out of the military, all of that is to stand in place of the best solution, which would just be, hey, his $100 billion figure, we're expected to get 
over $200 billion in additional revenue through Biden's funding of the IRS to hire more individuals to go after uh, the wealthiest tax cheats. Those at the very top who don't pay the taxes that they should have complex systems for getting out of paying their taxes. And the IRS, now that it has more resources or that it will have more resources, will be able to go after those individuals. And while the funding was something like $80 billion, the revenue back from that, because we'd be getting all that additional tax revenue that we're supposed to be getting, would be over $200 billion over 10 years. And so programs, investments like that, great way to protect programs that help the working American while still um, cutting down on the deficit if that's your priority. But so many people within the Republican Party, ah, no, don't go after the wealthiest. That's horrible. I like that billionaires can pay an effective um, tax rate of single digits, one, two percent in effective taxes, uh, federal income taxes because of all the different ways they can get out of paying taxes. They love that fact. So instead they say, it might be time to cut those naughty, naughty uh, uh, entitlements. We gotta get rid of some of those entitlement benefits, right? That's what they decide to go after instead. And it is really aggravating all around to see. Meta has announced that Donald Trump will be reinstated on Instagram and Facebook after just over two years. Uh, take a look at this with Meta's president. So you are ending the suspension of former President Trump on Facebook and Instagram. Why are you doing that now? And explain what's behind it. We're confirming that if he wants to, he, he can, in the coming weeks, he can use Facebook uh, and Instagram again. Um, I mean, of course, there are guardrails, there are rules. He's got to play by the, the rules. So so there we go, of course, during the January 6th um, events and all of his statements regarding that, he was banned. Um, and let's take a look at this from NBC News, or he was suspended, I should say. Former President Donald Trump's Facebook and Instagram accounts are being reinstated. The social media giant Meta announced Wednesday, a little more than two years after he was suspended from the platforms over incendiary posts about the January 6th riot at the Capitol. Trump's accounts will be reinstated in the coming weeks. With new guardrails in place to deter repeat offenses, Nick Clegg, Meta's president of Global Affairs, said in a statement, Meta owns Facebook and Instagram. The guardrails will include heightened penalties for repeat offenses, penalties which will apply to other public figures whose accounts are reinstated from suspensions related to civil unrest under our updated protocol, Clegg said on the company's website. In the event that Mr. Trump posts further violating content, the content will be removed and he will be suspended for between one month and two years, depending on the severity of the violation. So if they uphold that, I will be interested to see how quickly he is resuspended because I can't imagine he would act properly on these platforms, not immediately uh, violate their terms of service once he's back on there. So this will have an effect, not nearly as much as Twitter did, and we will see how that all plays out. Very interesting indeed. Reporting has revealed that the Department of Justice was prepared to get a search warrant and search Joe Biden's raid, Joe Biden's Delaware residence. 
this is interesting by itself and it's also interesting for what it means about the inaccuracy of the right-wing analysis on this whole ordeal but let's take a look at this first tonight sources are telling cnn that the fbi's unprecedented search of president biden's delaware home followed very high stakes talks between the justice department and biden attorneys and the department was prepared to seek a search warrant cnn senior legal affairs correspondent paula reed is on the story for us right now paula first of all what are you learning about the high stakes discussions between the U.S. Justice Department and Biden's attorneys. Well, Wolf, as you noted, this was unprecedented. The FBI searching the home of a sitting president. And Biden's team has stressed that they were cooperating. They wanted this search to happen. But we've learned the federal investigators also were prepared to seek a warrant if they did not get consent to search the Wilmington property. Now, the Justice Department never had to raise that possibility in these discussions because they came to an agreement about how the FBI would be allowed to search the house. They were given access and allowed to search the entire premises. But look, the Justice Department is aware they need to treat this case the same way they treat the Trump probe. The facts of these cases at this point, they are very different. But as right. we we'll stop it there. But this is so fascinating because right when the Biden document story broke, immediately the right wing started screaming that the left wasn't going to care about it. They were going to try to cover it up. The DOJ was going to politically persecute Trump, but completely not touch Biden and all these different things. And then the DOJ appointed a special counsel. They took it very seriously. They're investigating it. And that just flew in the face of the right wing narrative. Now they've continued with that narrative saying, why didn't they raid Biden? They raided Trump. You got to make it fair. And as we've talked about before this reporting even came out, the reason why they didn't raid Biden is because he gave voluntary access to his residence. Why would they need to raid a place that they already have full access to? That makes absolutely no sense at all. Trump was not allowing the National Archives first to get their hands on these documents. So then they turned it over to the FBI and they had to raid because he was obstructing the process. He was knowingly keeping these documents out of the hands of the people who were trying to um, get them. And so it always was a very incorrect bit of analysis, but now this reporting makes it even more so that the Department of Justice was perfectly ready, if necessary, to do exactly to Trump what they did to Biden, but Biden acted differently. That's the difference. When they say there's a double standard with the DOJ, there's not. There's just a difference with Trump and Biden. Biden should still be held accountable if any wrongdoing you know, is uncovered or proven, all that. Investigation should happen. But it's obvious that he is handling this so much more appropriately. He's not obstructing. And he's doing what you should do uh, after the wrongdoing of having the documents, right? That is not what you should do. But after that, he's handled it as he should. And so the DOJ didn't have to get a search warrant involved in this process because they got access to where they would be getting the search warrant for. So there's absolutely no purpose for it. So really interesting here. And just another bit of proof that the DOJ isn't trying to go harder on Trump well, okay, let's say they're not trying to go harder on Trump just because he's Trump. They're having to be more severe with him because he obstructed, right? But they're being very um, correct in their actions, very appropriate in the way that they're approaching these two situations, now three with Mike Pence. And that is made very clear time and time again, especially with that reporting.
Let's take a look at the truth behind Kerry Lake's loss in Arizona. And it's not the one that would be attached to that sentence by the Kerry Lake camp, which is, oh, it was stolen from me, Katie Hobbs did all these stealing actions, and thus I lost. Instead, it is something we've seen across the country in the midterms with election deniers, with these radical candidates, where Republican-leaning voters voted for a lot of Republicans on the ballot, except the radical election denier, because they just couldn't quite get themselves to go there. And good thing that they couldn't. But it's the very views that we're now hearing from Carrie Lake that caused her um, to lose. What she's saying about her election now was what she was saying about Trump's election and is one of the things that caused her to lose in Arizona. Very interesting piece here from Mediate, actually kind of summarizing an Arizona Republic piece, but I liked the Mediate breakdown. Carrie Lake, the Trump-backed Republican candidate who lost the 2022 Arizona governor's race to Democrat Katie Hobbs, fell short because tens of thousands of Maricopa County voters cast ballots for other Republicans, but not her, according to a report by the Arizona Republic. According to the Republic, Lake's loss boils down to the fact that she alienated vast swaths of her fellow Republicans, pointing to a recent analysis of the public voting records to identify the disaffected voters who, su uh, who support the majority of candidates from one political party but cast a vote for the opposing party in a specific race. Quote, the numbers show that while Lake claims she lost because of printer problems or other issues in Maricopa County, she could have won has she not turned off voters in the state's most populous county who backed a host of other Republican candidates? And then we'll get into the specifics in a second here. But it's so interesting because the lies that she's telling, as I said, about her election now, that's why she lost because she was saying that about Trump's election and she was an election denier and she was radical MAGA in all these ways. And now she's using the fact that she alienated those voters as a loss that she can point at to say was stolen from her. Wild. Those decisions, as it continues, this is an excerpt from the Arizona Republic piece, made a profound difference. Democrat Kitty Hobbs picked up the support of 33,000 Maricopa County voters who cast ballots for Republicans in six down ballot races, such as state treasurer and county attorney, adding to Lake's deficit, were another nearly 6,000 Republican-leaning voters who opted to skip the race altogether or wrote in the candidate, the analysis found. If those voters had stuck with the GOP ticket, Lake would have won. She lost by 17,117 votes statewide. So she alienated more moderate voters in Maricopa County, and thus she lost thousands of votes that could have brought her across the finish line. And that is a sweet, sweet bit of justice. In the buildup to her election, she's lying, she's lying, she's lying, spreading all of these dangerous lies about the 2020 election and saying that her election might be stolen. And it was so scary to think about the fact um, or the reality, the hypothetical of an individual like Carrie Lake, who is that dangerous, who is that dishonest to be the governor of a state? And so the fact that all of that, that rhetoric, that radical nature of who she is, the fact that it got picked up on by the voters and they responded in the way that I believe is justified is really, really good to see. It's concerning that she got as many votes as she did, but we'll take our wins when we get them. So no, it's not because it was stolen from Carrie Lake. It's because she, through language like that language, alienated necessary voters for her 
to win. Democratic Representative Ruben Gallego appeared on Readout on MSNBC and very aptly criticized Kirsten Sinema. Of course, he is now running for Senate in Arizona against Kirsten Sinema, who's now an independent. He's running for the Democratic nomination. And um, I liked what he had to say here. Take a look. I mean, um, John Jones, who does our great readout blog, he wrote a piece that I thought was very illuminating for me, that Kirsten Sinema's opposition to the voting rights bill now seems quite self-serving, um, that it helps her, right? If you don't make it easier to vote, young voters, voters of color, that makes it harder for them. That's good for her. But what do you make of her big shift? She claimed to be friends with John Lewis. She, she made all these claims, right, that there's no backup for it. But now she's like thumbs upping. Mitch McConnell is saying that she's the best, most, the best senator ever. Um, um, and she was literally high-fiving in Davos about killing voting rights. Who is she, and how did she get this way? She, I don't think she voted against voting rights because she had some cynical ploy to help keep her in office. It was, in my opinion, it's actually kind of worse than that. She did it to curry favor with the powerful, uh, the rich, and the Republicans. Uh, and this is her way to kind of show that she is a, she, it's her way of sticking it, uh, you know, to the Democrats. Uh, and, you know, for me, I, I worked with John Lewis. John Lewis came out and campaigned for me for my first congressional race. Uh, you know, I don't consider him a, a friend, I consider him a mentor, because he really taught a lot of us younger politicians how to be good leaders, how to yeah. be good leader servants. And for you to say that, you know, like she did for many years, that this man was my, my friend, he was my mentor, and when you vote against his key legislative, uh, uh, you know, uh, bill. It's named after him. It's named after him. <laughs> yeah. Um, in order to appease, you know, some people that want to actually suppress voter rights, um, it, it just tells you where they are. Like, she's for sale. Yeah. And and that's the worst thing you could, you could be in politics. The worst thing you could be in politics. Absolutely. And it comes down to a number of things with her. I do think her opposition to important uh, actions like voting rights is multifaceted and I do think some of it is what he said where there's this obsession among some who see themselves as I'm not just another Democrat I'm kind of in the middle enlightened centrist which it can be very uh, justified and interesting and valuable to have someone who's in the middle of course but don't take a stance against something just for the sake of being against your own party so that you can say, oh, I'm against my own party. I'm so different. I'm so independent, right? Because the action that was being pushed for was necessary, protecting voting rights. It's important. And her opposition to it just seemed so cynical. And then on many issues, including Biden's Build Back Better plan that she and Joe Manchin obstructed for a very long time and ended up being the reason that it got so whittled down, the Inflation Reduction Act, still significant. Glad they supported it. Credit to them on that. But we could have had something much more um, significant. And I do think it's heavily, heavily influenced. Actually, I venture to say I know it's heavily, heavily influenced by the fact that, yes, her campaigns um, heavily funded by big dollar donations, by uh, special interest groups, as is almost every politician barring a very small number um, and so whenever you know that the way you're going to stay in power is through those donations you're going to 
strive to act in the interest of the individuals giving you those campaign donations. And we talked about in the context of Carrie Lake uh, yesterday, when she was talking about the globalists are controlling Christian cinema. No, it's so much simpler than that. It's not a big conspiracy theory. It's not some crazy, you know, uh, dark in the shadows story that you tell. It's out in the open, publicly available information. Uh, you know, large corporations, wealthy individuals donate a lot of money to super PACs, to PACs, to help certain individuals get elected. So those individuals then, those politicians, feel obligated to support um, the interests of those special interests. It's not just that with her, but that's definitely heavily influencing um, her vote. And so him saying, that's the worst type of politician you can be is absolutely accurate. And then also just trying to get attention or whatever the reason Manchin and her do the things they do um, to seem different than the rest of the Democratic Party. That's also not a good reason unless you're opposing something and being different for a good reason. Don't just do it uh, to do it. A recent poll was released revealing that while we have watched Donald Trump's support among the country and the Republican Party specifically decrease a lot, he's not out of this. And a recent poll, as unfortunate as this is, shows that he's leading Biden. In this one poll, um, very concerning here for media, former President Donald Trump's electoral prospects for 2024 appear to be looking, uh, looking up as the latest Emerson College poll shows Trump leading President Joe Biden in a potential matchup, a significant swing from last November. The poll released on Tuesday found 44% of respondents back Trump in the 2024 presidential election, while 41% back Biden. 10% of those polled want someone else, and 4% were undecided. In November's Emerson poll, Biden held a three-point lead over Trump, making the current poll a sizable seven-point swing for the former president. That is significant. So, number one, can I say, imagine the 4% is undecided. Imagine existing in American politics and still today going, nah, I don't know, Biden, Trump, we're not gonna have to see. <laughs> That's very wild and my brain can't quite compute. But also the attention span, I think, at least of the results we get out of these polls is wild to watch where Trump attempted to stay in power as president, January 6th happened and people will go, oh, that's bad. Yeah, definitely, I don't support him. And then two seconds later, ah, never mind, I'm, I'm back to supporting him. Or the raid, oh no, criminal investigation, he's bad. These decreases we see are so temporary, um, which very much <laughs> concerns me. I'll show you a quick clip from The View where Alyssa Farah Griffin is kind of articulating this same idea that don't completely count Trump out. And I think for us as individuals who do not want to see him get back in the White House, have to be realistic and say, and this is absolutely true, he's a whole lot weaker than he was in the past. That's still true, but he may not be so weak that he has no chance. We know he doesn't have no chance and we have to recognize that so we can properly address it. 
But here's this. I mean, they, I, I don't think that means votes for someone on another no, no, of course not. I honestly think it's totally overstated. They just haven't come out and endorsed him yet because nobody else has declared for, uh, for president. And I hate to say this, but I think reports of Trump's demise are greatly overstated. The last three mm. polls, um, Harvard poll, Emerson poll, Morning Consult, have Trump leading Ron DeSantis, and some of them by double digits. I think elected Republicans are dying for it to be Ron DeSantis. They think... You know, he's right. Um, and we'll stop that there. But I do think you have to distinguish between elected officials who a lot of them are getting more and more tired of Trump versus voters. And still a lot of voters don't support Trump compared to past times when he had complete almost support within the Republican Party. But because of the way our political system works and primaries and all that, he could still very well win the primary. And then this poll says could be Biden. And that is terrifying. The hypothetical of an individual who attempted to stay present despite losing the last election still tells the lies that caused an insurrection would have overthrown our democratic process to stay president if he could have, he attempted to, still has a chance to become president again. That is so messed up. Let me know what you think, Luke P. Beasley on Twitter. Thank you so much for watching and listening to today's show. I will see you tomorrow.